Legacy Coder Podcast Episode 6 Continuous Deployment with Natural Hello and welcome to Legacy Coder Podcast. My name is Stefan Macke and in this sixth episode today I want to talk about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because I've been working on this stuff for the last two years and what I'm going to talk about today is continuous deployment for natural. So automating your build process and also your deployment process in a way that after, for example, a push to Git or a commit to any other version control system, your whole build pipeline is triggered automatically and including the deployment of the new release to the production environment, everything is executed without any human intervention at all. The idea of continuous deployment is not new to software development on other platforms, for example .NET or Java. This automation has been possible for a long time, but uh, right now, due to the rise of the microservice architecture, it's becoming more and more interesting for developers and companies out there to automate the full deployment pipeline. And I want to talk to you about that all of this is possible even if you use Adabase and Natural for your application development because that's what I did over the last two years, automating exactly this process from push over compile, unit testing and all that stuff until production-ready deployments. And I've structured this episode in three main parts. First of all, I want to talk to you about what could possibly go wrong if you don't automate your process. And I'll give a quick recap about continuous integration. Then we'll go into the details about some of the basics of continuous integration, delivery and deployment, and also blue-green deployments, which is a central part of our build pipeline. And in the last part, Uh, of this episode, I'm going to talk about continuous deployment for natural and what my employer, Alte Olmo Krankenversicherung, did to automate all these steps. And in addition to that, there's even a fourth part of this episode where I'm going to talk about how you can start with continuous deployment for natural right now. So I brought a few small steps that you can take on your journey towards automating your deployment pipeline. So let's start with a quick introduction. If you haven't already listened to episode two of the Legacy Coder podcast, then I'd recommend to you that you go and do that before you continue with this episode because the basics of uh, continuous integration and what it means and uh, what can be automated, uh, even if you don't want to automate your deployment, are introduced in that episode. However, to get started, I'll do a quick intro on continuous integration or short CI and CI is a software development practice where every developer on the team that works on yeah, a central piece of software for example integrates his or her changes at least on a daily basis. So if you use some kind of versioning control like Subversion or Git or CVS or Team Foundation Server, then at least daily every developer should commit or push his or her changes to the central repository. And after this integration is done, a 
so-called CI server, a continuous integration server, for example, like Jenkins, builds the whole software, so compiles the software, tests the software, and uh, tries if everything still works. So integration errors that, for example, lead to compile errors are visible instantly or at least after a few minutes after the CI process took place. And this means that there will be no more long integration phases right before the next release, for example, where there's also uh, oftentimes a code freeze where nobody is allowed to uh, add additional features to the system, but only integrate the existing features. And all of this isn't needed anymore because integration takes place on a daily basis and that's the main benefit of continuous integration so you can um, concentrate on delivering new features instead of integrating the existing features with each other so now that we know what ci gives us let's think about what could go wrong if you try to deploy something into your production environment. Let's say for a moment that we don't have anything automated yet and we have to manually deploy modules to the production environment. And I speak from experience because just a few years ago we at Alte Oldenburger deployed exactly in that way. We used Natural Studio for Windows and we had to copy over the modules from the dev to the production environment manually one by one and we also had to extract features from within these modules. So for example, if there was one module that had to be changed in two different features, we had to manually extract the lines of code, the individual lines of code that uh, belong to one feature or the other to be able to yeah, um, isolate these features from each other and to be able to deploy them individually. And this process is, of course, very time-consuming and also very, very error-prone. So let's think about what could possibly go wrong if you use such a manual deployment process. In our case, it started with finding all the modules that you need to deploy in the first place. Because, for example, if you have been working on the latest feature over the last two months, then how could you possibly remember all the modules that you've changed during this long period of development? And... Oftentimes we forgot to deploy certain modules, but uh, the application itself started. But when the feature was invoked, then there was a runtime error because some of the modules haven't been deployed. So the infamous net0082 invalid command or subprogram does not exist. That's something that definitely can go wrong if you manually deploy your software. In addition to that, of course, there's the uh, format length conflict and parameter net error 936 or 933 GDA timestamp conflict. All of this can occur if you selectively deploy individual modules and, for example, forget that all the dependent modules of a changed parameter data area have to be recompiled. Or if you don't do a cat all on the whole library that you just deployed, so a GDA, for example, gets changed, but all the dependent modules now have an older timestamp. However, all of these problems could be solved by doing a cat all over all your libraries in the uh, right order, so including the step lips and all of that. But separating the different features that are scattered all over your code base and need to be manually handpicked on a yeah, line of code basis 
That's something no compiler or cat all can find and can um, repair automatically. So this needs to be done manually. And last but not least, let's not forget all the individual compile errors that may reside also on your production environment. At least in our case, we had modules on our production system that hadn't been compiled for five years, but nobody dared to delete them because of the fear of yeah consequences that nobody thought about, even though the modules themselves haven't been compiled for five years. Nobody was certain whether there were still some dependencies or whether somebody somewhere at any point in time might need this code. And all of this slows down the deployment process because every time you run a cat all, for example, you have to check against a list of known compile errors or write a mail to all of your developer colleagues to ask them if the compile errors are okay or if uh, something broke and had to be repaired. And you might already guess that this isn't fun for any developer. So we saw that there are lots of things that can go wrong if you manually deploy your changes to your target environment. So now let's talk about some of the basics on our way to continuous deployment. We start with the next step after continuous integration and that is called continuous delivery or CD. And CD builds on top of CI and makes sure that the software can be released at any time. So the deployment process has to be fully automated up until the deployment to your production stage. But the deployment isn't triggered automatically by the system, but a human has to decide when to deploy the software to the target environment. So the whole process is automated, but deciding when the process should take place and when production should be updated is still a human task. So you might uh, imagine that there's some kind of red button uh, some developer has to push to to trigger a production release. But after this push, the human intervention is no longer needed. Everything runs automatically, but yeah, only the decision has to be made by a human. And if you take this process one step further and automatically trigger a production deployment after every build, so after every push to Git, for example, the complete pipeline is automatically executed and the production environment is released, then that's what we call continuous deployment. Unfortunately, continuous delivery and continuous deployment are both abbreviated with CD. So it's a bit hard to distinguish between them. If I say CD throughout the remaining episode, I'm talking about continuous deployment because I want to make sure that everything works automatically without any human intervention at all. So CD for the remaining part of this episode refers to continuous deployment. And what do we gain by that? Well, there are no more release days or let's say release weekends in most companies I know of. But the production environment is built multiple times a day. All of the latest features and the latest bug fixes are automatically put into production without human intervention. 
And to be able to do that, we need something called a deployment pipeline. The deployment pipeline defines all the steps necessary to build and deploy a new version of the software. And these steps are called stages. And it might be a bit misleading because when I talk about a stage, I'm also referring to the different environments, for example, development, QA and production. That's something that I call stage two. But stage in the context of a deployment pipeline are these individual steps of the deployment process. For example, compiling, uh, unit testing, uh, deploying, but also checking out from Git or your versioning control and all that stuff. And if you want to see what such a deployment pipeline for natural might look like, then take a look at the show notes for this episode. You can find them under legacycoder.com slash six, the digit six for the sixth episode today. And there you can find a screenshot of three deployment pipelines for Alta Oldenburger's natural system. We have three different pipelines, one for each individual target environment or target stage namely development QA and production and they each um, yeah, behave in a little different way but I'll talk about that in detail in just a few minutes. Now these deployment pipelines have to be defined somewhere and if you start with CD you might install a CI server for example Jenkins and uh, configure your deployment stages there. So you might uh, click in the back end of Jenkins and select a stage checkout or select compile or unit test or whatever. But This means that you have to know the tool, you have to work with Jenkins and you have to define the deployment pipeline of your system in another system. And that might be a problem because um, to understand how the system is built, you have to look in two different places. You have your source code repository and you have the build server that defines the deployment pipeline. And you can optimize this situation if you define your pipeline in a machine readable format and put it right inside your main repository and that's what we call pipeline as code so you define all the individual steps of your pipeline in a text file uh, in a programming language or um more often in a domain-specific language. For example, for Jenkins, you write a Jenkins file. And inside this file, you define all the steps that are necessary to build and deploy your system. And this Jenkins file gets checked into Git and um, you can find it in one single place, all your natural sources and the Jenkins file that defines how to build this natural application can be found in a central place. And the last basic thing that I want to talk about is the concept of blue-green deployments. To be able to deploy to production while users and, for example, batch jobs are still using the target environment, you need another target environment for the deployment process. So, for example, instead of having only one production environment, you define two production servers, for example, and you call one of them green and the other one blue. And if you deploy to the blue server, then all of your users have to work on the green server. And if the blue server had been deployed and is yeah, production ready, you can just switch the two servers and all your users will now work on the new version and 
the old server now becomes the target of the next build. So you have this concept of rotating target servers and because somebody came up with the colors blue and green, we call this process a blue-green deployment because you alternate between target environments and your currently active users work on a stable environment and only after the new release has been deployed and is production ready this uh, yeah, little switch of the service that might take only a few milliseconds and then the users work on the new release. In, um, for example, .NET or Java or any other web applications, you would implement that with, for example, a load balancer. And the load balancer is reconfigured to route all the new requests coming in to the new production system, for example. In the case of our database natural application, we at Alta Oldenburger chose to implement nine different target servers. So you uh, might say that we don't use blue-green deployments, but more like rainbow deployments, because we iterate through nine different target F users on the production system. And as long as there are some users or batch jobs still active in one of those F users, it's skipped for the next release and there's always a free F user that's used for the deployment and as soon as the new F user is built then a central piece of configuration is changed and the new production system now points to the new F user and the users that are locked on to the old F user get some kind of information pop up in their um, natural application that says well if you lock off and lock on again to the system you will be automatically pointed to the latest release of the software so long running batch jobs or individual user sessions can still be active while the deployment takes place and they're not forced to switch over to the new version but they can decide for example when they finished their work that now would be a good time to yeah do a quick lock off and lock on again and then they get the latest release and can work with all the new features that have been deployed Okay, that all sounds uh, very interesting, but yeah, let's be honest. What do we get from that? What are the benefits, the advantages of a fully automated deployment process, including blue-green deployments? Well, there are multiple benefits that I can think of. For starters, there will be no more missing files, GDA timestamp conflicts, format length conflicts, any compile errors whatsoever, because every time this pipeline is executed, the application is rebuilt from scratch. So the deployment knows, for example, the right uh, order in which to catalog the libraries. And for example, that functions, that call other functions need to be recompiled twice so that all of the errors go away. And all of this is written inside a Jenkins file. So nobody has to know all that stuff, but a machine can reliably execute all of this in a repeatable way. And that means that you get fast feedback. There's this notion of fail fast. So it's better to 
instantly see that we made an error than to wait until the latest uh, possible moment in time uh, right before the next release day and find out about the error then when you have only got uh, eight hours to fix it for example so it's very important that all of the things that you hate that you are scared about that you do them more often because the more often you do these things the less scary they become so make your problems visible as soon as possible so that you only need to do a little bit of course correction to have these errors removed instead of waiting until release day and yeah having to fix hundreds of errors at a single point in time. The interesting thing about this rotating F-user stuff, this blue-green deployment is, if something broke, for example, you deployed the new production system and you found out after the deployment that something um, yeah, hasn't been tested enough, that some a new bug was introduced, whatever, you can easily and reliably roll back to the previous known working state. In our case, it's just a matter of calling a small shell script that sets an environment variable and you're back to the previous state and what's very interesting of course you have this buggy deployment and you can see what caused the error right inside the production environment where the bug is still active while all of your users are already working on the old error-free environment and this is also true not only for buggy releases but you can, as a developer, test your new release in production without any user uh, being disturbed by that. For example, if you do a live deployment in a free F-user, you as the individual developer can log on to this new F-user nobody else even knows about, do your manual testing, for example, and if everything's okay, you can trigger the switch of the target F-user in just a few milliseconds. So it gives you as a developer an even better idea of the working production environment. And this also means that deployment doesn't have to take place in the evening or out of office hours on the weekends, for example, because you can trigger an individual deployment of the production environment during the day because nobody knows about this deployment until you decide that it should replace the existing one. And this is one of the main benefits that we at Alte Oldenburger got from automating the process because you can just push your changes to the master branch in Git, for example, wait a few minutes and see if everything still works. You can even interactively log on to the target F-user and do manual testing when all the other users are working on a different F-user. And this gives you a much better feeling when you finally decide to switch over to the new release. So no more working from home just to get the release on production and uh, yeah, having to cross your fingers that everything would work the next day. You can be yeah, absolutely sure that everything will work when you come to work on the next day. And also, last but not least, the individual deployment tasks, so copying sources over and um, yeah, extracting features and testing all that stuff, it's all done by the machine. So your 
I think very expensive developers don't need to do these boring tasks themselves, but they can concentrate on implementing new features, on providing business value instead of doing something that a machine can do much better and faster and less expensive. So you see that continuous deployment not only makes the life of your developers easier, it can also bring monetary benefits for your company. But the most important feature of CD is that new features of your software can be released way faster than it was ever possible before. And with that, I would like to come to the third part of this episode and I want to give you a short overview of what Alte Oldenburger did to automate their natural build process. And first of all, I would like to start with an overview of all the tools that we used for that because almost all of them are completely open source and free for download and use. Only the natural IDE we use, Natural One by Software AG, is a commercial product. All of the other tools are completely yeah, open source. And we start with versioning control. We use Git for that. We have used Subversion for a long time, but when we switched over to an Eclipse-based environment, we have used NetClips by Innovake for quite a long time. Um, we decided that we needed to switch to Git because of all of the benefits it brings us. For example, the distributed versioning control system, you can do commits and merges and diffs all on your local machine without the need to connect to the central repository. But I'm not here to uh, sell distributed versioning control to you. I don't care what versioning control system you use, just use one. And in our case, it's Git. For uploading the natural sources to the target server, we use the and script that's provided by Software AG. However, we programmed our own custom Gradle wrapper for that. Gradle is another build tool that's well known in the, the Java space. And we decided to write this wrapper because all of the Java projects that we have at Alta Oldenburger are also built with Gradle. So we wanted to have one central build tool for all of our builds. So it, yeah, I think it took me one day to write this wrapper. And now we are able to build our natural application the same way. So with the same commands that we use for building our Java applications. We use Jenkins as the CI server. I don't want to talk about that because it's very well known in the industry. It's the de facto standard, at least I think, for continuous integration. And of course, it has all the needed features to also use it for continuous deployment. On top of that, we use a custom Java program. We programmed ourselves for the compilation of our natural sources because the ANT script from Software AG, um, I'm not sure why, but it wasn't able to compile our application correctly. For example, it didn't consider the steplib chain and we ended up with lots of compile errors and we also found no way of displaying these compile errors inside Jenkins. So we had to come up with a custom solution for that. We implemented a short uh, Java program that just does a, a cat all for all the individual libraries in the right order and for example recompiles all the functions that calls other functions and some more basic tasks that are needed in our uh, special environment. 
For unit testing, of course, we use our own framework, NetUnit. You can use that yourself. I've talked about that in an earlier episode of the Legacy Coder podcast. Yes, unit tests are possible with Natural. You just have to start and you can write your unit tests in Natural. No need for any additional tool whatsoever. Just go and download um a net unit it's completely open source you can take a look at all the sources and um, make them work in your environment and in addition to natural one which is based on eclipse as you might know we introduced some plugins for working with our code base for example we have a so-called workflow plugin that automatically finds out what sources were changed during the development of a feature and um Yeah, stages them, for example, to the QA stage or production stage for you. So you as a developer don't have to know what modules need to be deployed, but this plugin does all of this for you. And to be able to do that, the plugin connects to Redmine, which is also an open source tool for project management. And all of the issues that are created in Redmine do get their Git commits attached to them, And attached to these commits are all the files that have been changed during these commits. So the workflow plugin only needs to get an issue number, connects to Redmine, finds all the commits that were attached to the issue and finds all the programs and modules that were changed during each of those commits. So the developer only has to enter an issue number and ends up with a list of sources that have been changed during the life cycle of this issue. And he can now decide whether all of them or only um, a few of them for whatever reason should be copied to the next stage. Of course, there's a little module integrated where the developer can do a merge or a diff between the individual versions of the modules that may be deployed. So the developer doesn't have to leave natural one at any point in time. He can just enter an issue number and do all of the manual tasks that are still needed right within natural one, where he can, if he had finished his work, click on commit, for example, and push all the changes to Git and the build pipeline is triggered automatically after that. So let's take a look at exactly this pipeline that's triggered now. Well, for starters, I've mentioned it earlier, we don't have a single pipeline, but three different ones for each individual branch. Our main natural repository contains three branches, development, QA, quality assurance and production and the developer has to decide what changes need to be transferred to the other branches for example by merging them or by copying them whatever what counts is that the changes need to end up in the target branch in git and then the individual deployment pipeline for this branch is triggered um, for the most part the stages so the individual steps of this deployment pipeline are the same, but the pipelines contain a few individual steps, for example, for testing and deployment. The main difference, for example, is that our development branch is deployed directly into one single F-user, so there's no rotating blue-green deployment, um, but on production and on QA, we work with this rotation however on QA the switching of the yeah now active F user is done after every build and on production we decided that the switch 
should only take place once a day in the evening where no users are actively working. We would be able to automate the deployment and to switch the user multiple times a day, but we found out that in our environment it's not needed to do that. We would nag the users with multiple messages a day that they should now log off and on again without providing that much of a benefit to them. So in case of emergency, when we need to do a quick bug fix on production, for example, we can activate the switching of these F users even during office hours. But for normal deployments, the switching of the F user is done automatically in the evening after our daily build of the production environment. And that's the way Alter Oldenburger does the deployment. In your company, it might be different. For example, you might decide that it's enough to uh, rotate the target environment once a week or twice a day or whatever. So I don't want to make any recommendations for this. It's yours to decide what makes sense for your company and for your users. But the important thing is that you have the possibility to deploy at any time that you want to deploy. And this is what an automated continuous deployment pipeline brings you. Okay, so now let's take a closer look at the individual steps, the individual stages of our deployment pipelines. I'm not going through all of the steps of all of the three pipelines here. It's, uh, it just doesn't make any sense, but I've selected some of the most important ones and we'll go through them one by one. First of all, the first step in every pipeline is to erase the target F user completely. So every build completely starts from scratch. So we definitely don't use incremental deployments. We decided that our system should be recompiled from scratch every time because in our experience, incremental deployments might bring uh, a few minutes. The, the development pipeline might run a bit quicker, but the possibility to introduce bugs or to not show compile errors, for example, because some old version of a module still resides on the target server is um, a bigger issue for us. And just to give you an idea of our code base, right now we have about 17,000 modules in our natural application. So uh, compiling all of these modules from scratch takes about three minutes. In fact, the upload of these modules takes longer than the actual compilation phase. And in our case, it's completely okay for us to wait six minutes to be sure that everything has been recompiled and there are no hidden dependencies or hidden old modules somewhere on the server. And this is more important for us than yeah, to squeeze out one minute in the build process. As I mentioned earlier, the compilation itself is done with this individual Java tool that we programmed ourselves. What this tool also does is format all of the compile errors as a JUnit result. There's this um, yeah, standardized way of reporting test errors to Jenkins. And because the Java tool formats all of the compile errors in exactly this format, Jenkins simply shows the compile errors the same way that it would show unit test errors. And after all of the upload and compile had taken place, the 
test stage is executed. And now the unit tests and also integration tests are executed. Integration tests need additional imports into the database database. Um, we distinguish between unit tests that call natural modules in isolation and they don't touch the database. But many old legacy modules are written in a way that they have to touch the database or otherwise they wouldn't work. So we have to make sure that these tests run on a well-defined state of the database and for that to work we import certain test cases into our target database before the test step is executed. We use our own framework for that. It's called AXPORT which is short for Adabase X and import and it imports test data. So for example uh, a whole insurance contract from XML files directly into database and after that there's a well-defined known state of the database and the integration tests can now work with this known state and of course lead to expected results. If all of these tests pass, if they are all green, then the next stage is triggered and the application is deployed into the next free F user. As I've mentioned earlier, there's a little shell script that looks for all of the current natural sessions, individual sessions and also batch sessions and checks whether one of the nine target F users that are potentially available is free. So there's no user locked on or no batch drop still running in this F user. And if that's the case, then this F user is chosen and the yeah, compiled natural application is deployed into this F user. And if we're on the QA environment, then this new F user is instantly activated as the new current one. And as I mentioned earlier on production, this is done only once a day after our nightly build has passed. And depending on the stage we're on, so on the, <laughs> on the environment we're on, dev QA and uh, production, there are a few additional steps that may be required. For example, restarting our natural RPC service. This is done on production every time the, uh, the target user is uh, switched, so once a day, and on QA directly after the build. So all of the integration tests, for example, from Web Methods Integration Server and Java applications that use um, natural services uh, are instantly routed to the new F users. And this also speeds up integration testing with other systems because we don't have to wait for a whole day for the new uh, release to be available. But on our QA environment, the new F user is instantly available. The new RPC servers are started and the integration tests work with the new version, the new release of the natural application. And after all of this has finished on our production system, there are two additional steps that are executed. After each nightly build, there's a git tag automatically created in the repository containing the current date. So after every nightly build, we have a tag in git that we can check out simply by entering the date of the day we want to check the release for. And that makes it very easy to go back to a certain release, for example, one that contained a certain bug, for example, or whatever. 
And from these Git tags, it's now very easy to collect all the changes between the tags and create a change log for our subject matter experts. So every morning when they start visits, they could take a look at the generated change log and see what new features, what bug fixes and whatever changes were deployed on the last day. So they're always up to date and we don't have to inform the users that now our feature XYZ has been deployed. They can just visit this website that's automatically generated by Jenkins and yeah, see for themselves what has changed since the last release. All right, that's all I had to say about Alter Oldenburger's deployment pipeline. I hope that I could inspire you with some of the steps that I mentioned here. And perhaps now it's time for you to start your journey to continuous deployment with Natural. And for the end of this episode, I've brought a few first steps for you that you can take yeah, on your journey to an automated deployment process. First of all, the main thing that you have to introduce into your system if you haven't done so already is use versioning control. No matter if it's Git or Subversion or whatever system else, without a versioning control system, none of the steps described today are possible. It's the absolute basic requirement that you have to implement. And if you don't use version control yet, I recommend that you take your production sources and make them the trunk or the master in your repository. And then you can take all the sources that are on development or QA or whatever stage you have in your system and put them into a different branch so that you can see all the differences and that you can start introducing some kind of merging mechanism to introduce new features. But your main line in your repository needs to be the production sources. And after you've introduced versioning control, you definitely should switch to an Eclipse-based environment for working with Natural. And that should be Natural One, of course, the tool provided by Software AG. We have been working with NutClips from Innowake for three years now, and we decided that it was time to switch because the tool mm, couldn't keep up with the requirements we had and in 2017 we completely switched to natural one so we're live now for six months and we hadn't considered switching back yet so natural one is the tool of choice for programming natural applications these days and you need to switch over to an Eclipse-based environment because after introducing versioning control, you have to make sure that versioning control is mandatory. You can't rely on your developers to copy the sources to Git, for example, after publishing them on the server. You need to switch this to first put the changes into versioning control and then deploy to the server. Your repository needs to be the single source of truth for your natural sources. And if you have all of this in place, so you have an Eclipse-based environment, you have a central repository, that's the single source of truth, and you have your code base 
completely copied over to the repository, the next thing that you have to do is make sure that there are no more compile errors inside of your system. And it might uh, already be the case in your company, in our company, that wasn't the case. We had to put lots of effort into removing compile errors and porting old reporting mode modules over to structure mode and all of the things that had to be done just to make sure that the environment could be compiled from scratch. So the goal is to have zero compilation errors for your whole code base. And after you've accomplished that, you can take the next step and introduce one additional F user in your system. That shouldn't take too much time, effort and mainly also disk space, for example, if you have lots of modules. And this target F user can now be used for the automated build. So in the first step, only the compilation of the natural sources into this F user. And this compilation can now be triggered, for example, from a Jenkins server. In the first step, you can even script the compilation yourself. You don't need a Jenkins server or whatever. You can just script it with a shell script, for example. Um, in Git, for example, you can write a hook script that's automatically called after each push. And this script could trigger the compilation and deployment into this dedicated build F user just to gain experience with the process and see if there are really no compilation errors and to find out if there are additional steps that you might need to take for your um, automation. And all of this takes very little effort but already brings you so much value because you can now reliably say that your system can be deployed and that you find errors as soon as a change is pushed to Git, for example. And when all of this is in place, you can now generate a deployment script from within Natural One and, for example, place it inside a Jenkins server. And remember, all of the tools are completely free of charge. You can just download and a Jenkins. There's a, I think there's also a one-click installer or at least an image that you can start with a double-click and you only have to configure some basic stuff and you're ready to go and you can create your first build. And as I mentioned earlier, Jenkins can um, work with this ARN script from the start. You might need to install an ARN plugin or whatever, but Jenkins is able to work with the script that's generated from natural one. So you don't need to do anything else. Start small and try to understand every step that you introduce in your pipeline. And if you've now automated your compilation phase, then it's time to take the next step and introduce automated testing in your system. Because the compiler can only find syntax errors, but semantic errors can't be found by any automation tool. You need a human to write a test case to be able to find these logical errors inside of your programs. So download NetUnit, for example, start writing unit tests for your application and then try to automate them and put them into your deployment pipeline. And if you've gained some experience with that and if you added additional tests and you can make sure that at least 
new changes can be tested automatically, then it might be time to introduce the next step and to continuously deploy your natural application to the target environment. And you don't need to automate all of that from the beginning. Think about continuous delivery. You can automate all the steps needed to deploy to the target environment, but you don't need to call them every time. You can still decide when to deploy to the production stage by clicking on a button or calling a shell script or whatever. You don't need to start with a fully automated tool chain. Start small and incrementally build your deployment pipeline until it fits your needs. And I'm pretty sure that all of this will bring you lots of benefits. At least in the case of Alto Oldenburger, it definitely brought down the deployment times, all the fear of deploying something has been washed away. No single developer has to know how to deploy something, to restart something after a deployment or whatever. Every single developer is now able to deploy to production reliably without breaking something. And all of this can be done during the day No more working on the weekends just to get the feature on production. And it definitely helped our company to produce new features faster and more reliably. And I'm pretty sure that this can also be true for your company. So start today and contact me if you have any questions whatsoever regarding our process or how we started or best practices or lessons learned or whatever. This podcast is here to help you and if you have any additional questions then feel free to get in contact with me. Visit the show notes. I've written all of the important contents down. I've added some screenshots and uh, additional information and reading recommendation and uh, links and all of that stuff just visit legacycoder.com slash six and you can get all of the information there and you can also find a contact form if you want to get in touch with me and feel free to do that i'm very happy to help you and with this i would like to end this episode and um, yeah thank you for listening to me about this yeah very important topic so thank you again for your time and until next time on the Legacy Coder Podcast. Bye.